I love this church. You don't have to announce every time. Just take a short fellowship break. We just do it instinctively. Amen. Give us half a chance to fellowship and we'll take it, right? Right. Uh, welcome to the service. It's just always uh, super encouraging and a real privilege just to share the Word of God with you guys. Just to remind you, we are thoroughly working our way through the book of Acts. And I just want to remind us that the book of Acts is a historical narrative. It is a story of the birth and the growth of the early church. Not everything that is captured and written in the book of Acts needs to be taken as an instruction for us to do. Guys get that? We speak about whether scriptures are normative or not. And not all scriptures, not all passages in the book of Acts are normative. In fact, Acts is generally not normative. Acts doesn't provide the principles and the methods, you know, in every situation that we need to apply. However, parts of the book of Acts are indeed normative. And what we are covering last week and this week um, are some practices in the book of Acts, in the early church, that are clearly normative for us. We are looking at how the early church grew and why they grew through their effective witness. And we covered three points last Sunday and we're going to cover three points today. And the reasons for the early church growth and the massive impact that the early church had are directly applicable to us. Exactly how we apply these principles can change, but the principles don't change. So that's what we are busy with uh, doing at the moment, last week, last Sunday and, and today. Now just to remind you, last Sunday, Jason and Dean covered three keys to effective witness that we learned from the church and that are very uh, directly applicable to us. They covered prayer, providence and power. Now the early church was devoted to prayer. You know, at every opportunity we see groups of Christians praying. And they would have prayed as Jesus taught them to pray, as the apostles who were with Jesus would have taught, taught them, taken down to them. You know, they prayed continually, uh, they prayed boldly, uh, they would have prayed persistently, without giving up, they would have prayed faithfully, they would have prayed, kingdom come, your will be done prayers. They would have prayed to align their lives with God's will, to know God's will, and then to align their lives with God's will. They would have prayed for unity. They would have prayed for one another. Now this was a church that prayed. This was a praying church. It was not just a church that prayed. Prayer was so embedded in their psyche, in their, in their habitual patterns, that they were just praying all the time. And prayer, prayer unlocks other things that help grow the church. Prayer is the fuel that drives the church. If we do not pray as a church, if we do not totally rely on prayer, then our witness cannot be effective. Even the praying itself was a witness because they took every opportunity to pray publicly. The people would have heard their prayers. They would have realized, wow, these guys pray for amazing things. So prayer was an important and first key to their effective witness. The second key that was covered last week was God's providence. Providence refers to how God directs events to achieve his purpose. And an, an example that was used last week was that of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was a, a devout Pharisee who was part of the Sanhedrin. And if you've been around for a while, you'll remember the story. Uh, Peter and John were dragged before the Sanhedrin. Things were getting really tight and stressful. 
But at the right time, God, God put on Gamaliel's heart to stand up and to cut Peter and John some slack, basically. He said, man, let's give them some time. Let's see if this is really from God or not. Uh, let's not, let's not overreact here. So that was God's providence and plan. And God uses people in strange ways. God uses very unexpected people sometimes to move his story forward. Because this is God's story. Now the birth and growth of the early church is directed and controlled, destined by God, and God is still in control. So we as a church need to be open to God acting in unusual ways and using us in unexpected ways and even using people that we wouldn't expect him to use and use situations that are not clear to us to move his story forward. So being open and to partner with God in his providence is a key to effective witness. And the third key we learned about last week was the power, power of the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts, as we have mentioned a few times, describes the ongoing acts of Jesus through his Holy Spirit-empowered followers. The power of the Holy Spirit enabled, emboldened the disciples to witness in very intimidating settings sometimes. The Spirit helped them to endure persecution. The Spirit helped them to change their worldviews from within and to become more and more like Jesus. The Spirit formed the community of love they were in, etc., etc., Now, the early church experienced the power of the Holy Spirit. The point was made last week because they yielded to the Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't force himself on us. We need to surrender completely to the Spirit to experience, you know, the power of the Spirit in us. These lessons in effective witness are all relevant to us. So, today we're going to cover three more points, three more uh, keys to effective witness. Um, I'm going to share the teaching with Lebuyu. Lebuyu is going to do the first one, and then I'll do the last two. Amen. Good morning. Please open your Bibles uh, to the book of Acts, chapter 5. That's where we'll be reading together this morning. While we're trying to get there, let's say a short prayer together. Mighty Father God in heaven, you are holy. Lord, you are sovereign. We stand before you, God, privileged to have been washed through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we come before you this morning, Father, to hear your word spoken, God. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you are here among us. Father, that you are with me as I speak the word. Father, that I handle your word with care and wisdom that it is due. Father, I pray that our hearts are open as we speak uh, from scriptures this morning, that, Father, you hear what it is that you are saying to us. I pray, Father, that you soften us, God, and that you allow us to see where we are unwilling to yield our own will, Father, to your will. That um, you are the one who who ministers uh, in that part of our hearts, God, through your word and through people that you've placed in our lives. We pray, God, that your service will give you glory this morning, Father, particularly what you have in store for us in the preaching of the word. We pray this all in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Acts chapter 5, that's where we're reading from verse, start from verse 1 down to 14. We'll try and cruise through it quickly. 
There was also a man named Ananias, who with his wife Sapphira sold some property. He brought part of the money to the apostles, but he claimed it was the full amount. His wife had agreed to this deception. Then Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell as you wished. After the selling after selling it, the money was yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who had who heard who heard what happened was terrified. Then some young men wrapped him in a white sheet and took him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Was this the price you and your husband received for your land? Yes, she replied. That was the price. And Peter said, How could the two of you even think of doing a thing like this, conspiring together to test the Holy Spirit of the Lord? Just outside that door are the young men who buried your husband, and they will carry you out too. Instantly, she fell to the floor and died. When the young men came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear gripped the entire church and all others who heard what had happened. Verse 12, Meanwhile, the apostles were performing many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and the believers were meeting regularly at the temple in the area known as Solomon's Colonnade. No one else dared to join them, though everyone had high regard for them. And the more and more people believed and were brought to the Lord. Crowds of both men and women. I think this is a familiar story to most of us, um, particularly given that we've been going through the book of Acts for some time now. Um, really what stands out from this passage. Um, we see a husband and wife seemingly on a noble process. Sell their property to give the money to the church. But unfortunately, along this process, something seems to go wrong. The heart hardened. Sin overtakes them. And they decide together, let's give a portion of the money to the church and keep some for ourselves. And through the leading of the Holy Spirit, they are confronted of this deceit and seemingly they are a very committed couple to one another. They hold up the lie that they had agreed to together and God strikes them dead on the spot. And uh, I think at this point two things are very clear. God is deadly serious about his holiness and He is that much serious as well about the purity of the church. So much so that God felt that it was necessary that he administers this discipline himself. Now this is a, this is a very scary thing. I mean, thinking about it, um, I I like firstly what Peter says to them. He says, how could you conspire to deceive the Holy Spirit? Another point I think that is worth noting here is that the Holy Spirit is not to be messed with. We cannot trifle with God's Holy Spirit without consequences. Now this incident obviously struck fear throughout the church and everybody who had heard the incident. Now if you're somebody like myself, 
you might think, wow, that's a bit extreme. You know, you might think that was a bit harsh. You know, given that they voluntarily sold the property, you know, they decided not to keep all of the money. They gave some to the church. You know, in my sort of small human sinful mind, I make such justifications. I think, why such a severe punishment? God wanted this to be clear to everybody. You will not deceive the Holy Spirit and get away with it. Might have been better for you not to sell the property in the first place, if that's where your heart is. Because God didn't need the money. But He's serious about sin being dealt with in the church. Now, you know, you, you might wonder, okay, what, was, couldn't they maybe be stricken with leprosy or some other thing, you know? You know, and Peter prays for them later on and then they recover, they've learned their lesson. I think there is very, especially at this stage of the church, I mean, the church was just about starting. And it was crucial that the church retained and maintained the integrity. I think we know today that is not the case in many churches. And if we need to, we may have to even look inside our own church and do a little bit of self-introspection. Are we as serious, firstly about God's holiness as He is, and about the purity of the church? You know, there are two aspects of this whole thing that I find absolutely amazing. Ananias and Sapphira had an opportunity to come forward and say, listen, this is what we've done. We realize it was wrong and we are so sorry. Will you please pray for us? Help us to repent. Here's the rest of the money or whatever. There was an opportunity for them to come forward. But it seems they didn't take it. But secondly, Peter saw something, obviously led by the Holy Spirit. He said something. I don't know if you've ever heard that about a brother or a sister. You observe something. The Holy Spirit talks to you about it. And you decide, it's better that we remain friends, that we're comfortable with each other. Because if I say this, they may never even talk to me again. So we have to weigh where we are and where God is about this issue. One of the, if I may, top three things that might, at least one of this is likely to come up in the top three things that are off-putting about Christianity. Hypocrisy. There's a lot of people, for good or bad reasons, that do not want to hear about Christianity on the basis of the hypocrisy of the Christians or the people that proclaim they are Christians. Drive people away from God. Hypocrisy. I believe that this is one of the things that God would not allow. Uh, His son died so that this could be established. 
he could not allow for it to be destroyed by just a few people that choose that they're not going to honor God, they're not going to be honest. And because what he says, he says a small little bit of leaven, leavens the whole dough. Starts with one person and then it spreads out. And then you are fill, you've got a church full of people that are hypocrites. But God is so kind. This is one of the things I love about our God. He is so kind that he had started the process, but he decided in his wisdom that he will delegate this to the church. Take a quick look in Matthew chapter 18 as we are about to close this point. Matthew 18 verse 15 reads as follows, uh, 16 down to 18. If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the fault. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won the person back. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two other people with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If that person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. If the church decides you are right, but the other person won't accept it, treat that person as a pagan and a tax collector. Now, there's something truly, truly amazing and gracious about this in God's part. Because if God were to deal with discipline in the church the way that he did in this church with Peter, I don't think there'd be a church. Right? I don't think the church would exist. But in his grace and kindness, he decided, I'm going to delegate this to you. And if you look, in the first century, I mean, the first century church took on this responsibility. They embraced this. They did not nurse feelings. They did not want, they did not want to protect friendships. They dealt with sin in God's church. In conclusion, or at least as I try and conclude, church, it is crucial that we deal with our sin. You know, when I was baptized a couple of, couple of years, many, many years ago, <laughs> this was one of the things that was common occurrence in the church. For me, it was different. It was new. It was refreshing, actually. As intimidating as it was, because it, from Scripture, first of all, I think that's one thing that I admired. It wasn't somebody saying, I feel we should do this, or this is what we do as a church. He says, this is what God's Word says. James chapter 5, 16, confess your sins to one another. So we have got to deal with sin in the church. In order for us to witness for Christ the way we are called to, we have got to keep the integrity and the purity of the church. With that in mind, I want to hand you back to Neil. Thank you very much. Amen. You would have figured out by now that we're going with P's here, okay? we got six keys. I can help you remember they all start with P. Uh, persistence is another reason why the early church grew and had impact. And we too must persist or persevere. And I want to focus specifically on how the early church persisted in proclaiming the true gospel, not watered down or compromised. Now we read in the first chapter or two of Acts how you know, the church grew very quickly. And in the beginning at least, the, the religious leaders didn't appear to be too threatened. They were interested, they were intrigued, they asked questions, they mumbled amongst themselves. 
But in time, as the church grew more and more, as the church grew bigger, the religious leaders felt more and more threatened. And as they threatened, their opposition to the church became more and more violent. You know, apostles were dragged before the Sanhedrin, they were threatened, and you know, we read, we read in Acts 7, by the time we come to Acts 7, the Jewish leaders are, are so threatened by this new movement that is changing Jerusalem and converting so many people away from Judaism that Stephen stands before them and he is stoned as a result of his truthful proclamation of the gospel. He didn't water down the fact that Jesus is both Saviour and Lord, and that Jesus was in fact the Messiah. And through rejecting the Messiah, Stephen accused the, uh, you know, the Jewish religious leaders of being no different from their ancestors who've always rejected God's rescue. So we have this, you know, this uh, resistance and this opposition to the way the early church uh, increasing and becoming more and more violent. Yet we never see the apostles watering down the gospel. Now, I don't know about you, but if I stood before this intimidating setting of, you know, seventy religious leaders, all, I, I might be tempted just to even soften my words just a little bit. And you? No, but you find that they proclaim more and more boldly the truth that everybody needed to submit to King Jesus. They needed to fundamentally change their world view and end into the life of Christ to be saved. What, how, how did God bless that, that boldness and that persistence in the truth? They continue to add to their number. And God added true disciples of Jesus to the church. There was no compromise. You know, sadly, many churches nowadays take the route of compromise. You know, the world is increasingly skeptical of Christianity. The world is increasingly self-centered. Pluralism is rife. In other words, surely there isn't one truth. Aren't you guys too exclusive? Do we really need to sacrifice that much? Surely we don't need to be that radical about following Jesus to be a Christian. And when we face that opposition and that resistance, you know, the temptation for us is real, you know, to compromise. And at the extreme of the compromise, you have churches that will teach, just say this cute little prayer. Say this cute little prayer and voila! You know, you save and welcome to the family of God. But there are many, many compromises between the true gospel that was taught by the apostles and that we need to imitate and that extreme. You know, there are, there are shades of compromise. The churches can grow very quickly by compromising. You know, by telling people what their itching ears want to hear. There are massive churches of thousands and tens of thousands of followers. But unless unless they have been taught to believe and to live out the true gospel of Jesus Christ as Lord, those churches are not for the true disciples. And you might say, oh Neil, that sounds very judgmental, which is another way the world responds. But you know what? The word of God makes it clear. You know, if we do not, church, if we do not preach and live the true gospel of Jesus Christ, and if we do not help people to understand and to live the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And that involves sacrifice. And it involves being in a loving community. It involves being vulnerable. It involves serving. And yes, life to the full comes out of that. But if we do not teach the true gospel, 
we will not be a true church of Jesus Christ. We need to persist, we need to persevere in telling the truth, even when the world around us increasingly rejects and gets increasingly upset when we do that. When, when we proclaim that there is indeed one truth and that Jesus is the only way to the Father. So we need to persist in proclaiming and living, not just proclaiming, living the true gospel of Jesus Christ. The early church did it okay, against all common sense as we might see it, but the more radical the opposition was against them, the more radical their proclaiming and preaching became. And God blessed that courage. He blessed that boldness. He, he blessed that faithfulness and that trust in him. And the church grew. You know, in my, in my cities, um, many Christian men reached out to me. You know, I was offended by what they told me. You know, I was a good church-going boy, been through some kind of a course. I couldn't remember exactly when it was, but I was kind of accepted as a member of the church I was in. And as we opened the scriptures, these brothers dared to tell me that maybe I didn't know everything. That maybe my salvation, maybe that wasn't valid. And I know this is probably very difficult to imagine, but I was quite an intimidating guy back then. (laughs) I I kind of, I fought back. I'm a bit of a counter-attacker. You say that stuff about me, well, how about this? And I would try to get scriptures together and develop my own gospel. But these guys, I really appreciate them in hindsight. I wasn't comfortable at the time, but they persisted in telling me the truth. They did not water down the gospel. And there was huge pressure to convert me because of my wife, right? You know, my amazing wife. She kind of was growing the church and leading the church at the time, sort of. You know, so there was huge pressure. And I can imagine the guys probably thought, well, if only we can get Neil into the family. Let's compromise just a little bit. They didn't and it took seven years for me to finally humble out, recognize my arrogance and to submit to Jesus. And I appreciate that those men and the amazing example of my wife who lived out the true gospel in genuine submission and surrender to Jesus Christ. I am grateful that I had that example and that people didn't compromise and teach a nice watered-down gospel just to get me in the group. So the early church persisted in proclaiming the true gospel of Jesus Christ as Saviour and Lord. And they grew. And they preached that gospel. They proclaimed that message even when faced with death. God blessed their faithfulness. They added to their number true disciples of Jesus who had counted the cost of following him. It's exactly the same principle for us. Now for God to add to this church true disciples of Jesus, we need to boldly proclaim the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And we need to faithfully live out that gospel. Not just Speak it, but to live it. And that really takes me to my, to the final point, which I call pattern. By pattern, I, I mean the, the embodied way in which these early Christians lived. Their, their intuitive, reflexive way of living together in community. When the early Christians were together, something happened. You know, we read about that in Acts, in Acts 2, immediately after 3,000 people were baptized on the day of Pentecost. They were doing life together in a way that was totally foreign and new to the people around them. 
And let me read this passage again, and many of you know it, but I think we can read this passage every day. And hopefully get challenged by it every time we read it. Acts 2 verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And here's the key statement. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Their lifestyle, this counterintuitive new way of being human, was attractive. People were intrigued. And and they lived like this in the public space. People listened, they observed, they thought, wow, that's interesting, let me find out more. The Lord added to their number, and the Lord still adds to his number when we live like this kind of community. You know, I was super privileged and encouraged and inspired by uh, most of the men in the church getting together on Friday night to pray. And, you know, the way the, the evening sort of progressed, we did all of these things. And it just came so naturally. Now, when we get together as, as brothers and when we get together as a church, we should just instinctively do these things. Something special about having a meal, isn't there? You know, table fellowship is so, so wonderful and special in the conversations you have around the table. It was a prayer evening. There was lots of prayer. And it was, your kingdom come, your will be done prayers. You know, we prayed for boldness. We prayed for open doors. We prayed that, we prayed that God will, will grow his church through us. You know, we looked at scriptures, we shared scriptures, we, we gave thanks. You know, we shared our lives with one another. And Siyazi shared his home with us. You know, we, had, we just thought we had everything in common. Every house in this church is a kingdom house. Every car in this church is a kingdom car, right? You know, that's, that's part of just living these counterintuitive lives. And church, here's the challenge for us. You know, the early church, this was their natural default. They didn't have to think, okay, when I come together, what do I do now? How should I behave? It just became their default. It was their reflexive way of being in community. You know, God rewired them from within. Where's the campus ministry? Amen. Rewired. They were rewired from within. It didn't happen just like that. And we're going to talk about how it happened and the lessons for us. But they were fundamentally rewired. Their understanding of how to live, their understanding of living in community was totally turned on its head. Through their conversion, the Holy Spirit working in them, through the teachings, through the time they spent together, the helping one another. They fundamentally changed the way they viewed life and lived life. Now the early church fathers would later um, coin the, the word habitus. Habitus. That this habitus was the distinctive, reflexive, embodied expression of the faith. You know, people were coming out of the, the culture, which was a very harsh culture. It was a culture where number one was important. You looked after number one only. You were competitive. You were forever trying to climb the social lab- ladder. You bragged. You never admitted any weaknesses. That was the culture in the Roman Empire. No, but... What we find in the early church is, although they were, they were brought up to retaliate and to fight back when they were hurt, 
They replaced that with a love for one another and a love for their enemies. They got to the point of, of spiritual maturity where they just instinctively loved one another. If someone hit them like Jesus, they would turn the other cheek and it would be instinctive. They didn't have to think, oh, what must I do now? They just fell forward all the time in relationships when we would be tempted to pull back. They came from a culture that accumulated possessions and they glorified wealth and achievement. They instinctively just started sharing with the poor. They would come to worship services, meetings of the body. They would just instinctively bring something with them, those who had means. I didn't have to, you know, halfway to church, I didn't think, oh, I forgot to bring some clothes and food. It was just part of preparation. It, just, it was who they were, who they became. It was a reflexive habitus, a pattern of living. Now, how was this habitus developed? And there are writings of early church fathers, especially in the second and third, sorry, third and fourth century, who write a lot about this. And the book of Acts, as I said, is a historical narrative. The book of Acts doesn't dig into every detail and explain exactly what they did and how. That wasn't the purpose of the author of Acts. He's really capturing main events that caused the church to grow and, and, and to move out into the world. But from these early church father writings, we can, we can assume what was happening in the early church and certainly in the first few centuries. Um, they developed the habitus through thorough teaching before and after baptism. Now, the teaching was focused on practice, not so much theoretical knowledge, but on practice of doing the scriptures, of doing the teachings of Jesus. They would have a sponsor or a mentor. They would sit in the presence of a teacher, appointed teacher by the church. They would leave those, you know, those Bible studies with specific challenges to go and do the teachings of Jesus now. They would come back, and only when you were living according to the habitus of the church were you allowed to be baptized. I'm not saying we should do that, but you can kind of see the sense, right? You know, they only let people into the family of God who got the habitus, who instinctively were at least changing from within and who were fundamentally changing their world views at the level of bringing about you know, new values and new actions and, and new lives. But after baptism, when they were allowed into the, into the community and they could take uh, you know, communion, the teaching continued. They continued to make disciples. They put into practice, into practice the great commission of Jesus. Go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey. No, to be a true disciple of Jesus and to develop this new habitus requires continual teaching and discipleship. I don't know about you, but I so easily default back to my old ways. A few days without being in prayer, without being in the scriptures, a few days of being alone and outside of the community of God, I can easily start viewing the world a little bit differently and, and go back to my old habits. Only me? So they focused on you know, these basic spiritual disciplines, but especially being in community. Now, I would love if we could get together every day. The world has changed. But we can always, each of us can get together with one or two disciples every day. Or be in contact with one or two disciples. You know, to be spurred on, to be encouraged, to help each other, as the boy you mentioned, to 
to really speak the truth in love to one another, to point out sin, to help us just develop this habitus, this instinctive way of living. Secondly, they develop the habitus through their worship services. And by worship services, I, I really include all meetings of the body. But especially when they got together for the worship service like we do, that time together involved traditions and rituals and repetitive habits that would become reflexive. They greeted each other with a kiss of peace. No other group in that culture did that. That's equivalent to our hug. I love our hug, don't you guys? I think that's kind of one of the best innovations ever. Right? Just the way, the way we hug each other. And if you're a visitor, you're going to get hugged, okay? I promise you. Right? Get used to it. <laughs> that's just the way we are. It's part of who we are. And it's so important, just that little act, it's an important, it's more than a ritual, it's, you know, we, we believe it, we love to do it, but when we hug one another, it reinforces we community. You know, we're close, we together, we, we look after each other. So they had these sort of things, for them it was the kiss of peace. They would sing hymns the way we do, but they'd carefully select the hymns. They'd look at the words, they wouldn't just sing, but, but they would allow the singing to change them from within and help them connect with God and change the habitus. Singing played a role. They read scriptures. They prayed a lot. They had a teacher who taught, and I'll try to just, you know, see if this was an exception. Unfortunately, it wasn't. The teaching was typically 10 to 15 minutes. Hey, man. That's not maybe normative for us, but the teachings were short. And the emphasis was on application. No, they'd have discussion. It would be organic. It was wonderful. And we're not far off from that. I really don't think we're far off. And it kind of encourages me. You know, that the things we do help to develop this habitus, this pattern, this new way of life. But here's the thing. If you are in the habit of not attending meetings of the body, you are not exposed to this habitus-forming culture, this habitus-forming place. Getting together and doing these things together is critically important for forming the habitus, the pattern, which is part of our witness, our communal witness. So I want to encourage us, church, to really consider meetings of the body and to see meetings of the body through this lens in future. It helps you to develop the habitus that God wants us to have, the instinctive, reflexive way of living. That only comes through practice and reinforcement in community. You know, Paul would write later on, when one part of the body hurts, we all hurt. He would stress that we are devoted to one another, that we belong to one another. Paul knew the importance of communal living and how we need to help one another live this totally new, counterintuitive, countercultural life in Christ. Paul knew. And if you're in the habit of missing meetings of the body, not only are you in serious danger of falling back to your old way of life because you're missing out on this habitus-forming environment, but it weakens the body. You know, Lebouillou mentioned it, that one of the greatest, the greatest criticism that people in the world have of Christians is, you hypocrites. You say one thing, but I don't see you live it. We cannot speak about being the family of God and this close community if we're not in it and if we're not demonstrating it. It seems to me if I read you know, Acts and, and the writings of the early church leaders that it was an expectation. There, there is an expectation that we commit fully 
to, not just to God and to Jesus, but to a local community. And we live out our faith together. You know, that is part of counting the cost. I don't even like seeing it, I don't even like to call it counting the cost. It's part of the amazing blessings we have in Christ. Is that we're part of this loving, caring community. But there's more to it than just us benefiting and us now living life to the full. It is strengthening the communal witness for Jesus. It is developing this incredibly important tool. As Cyprian would say, and I know I've shared this many times, Cyprian, by the way, was a church leader in North Africa. And in the church at the time, there were many uneducated people. Poor people as well who couldn't read even, who hadn't been taught the mental disciplines of even memorizing scripture. You know, the church leaders, including Cyprian, were very capable of proclaiming the gospel. They were very capable of giving a defense of the gospel. They were right up there with any other, the most intelligent person in, in North Africa, in the cities. But he recognized that not, not everybody in his church could do that. He didn't say, hey guys, sorry, you can't witness, I'll witness. What did he say? He said, we do not speak great things, we live them. So he was telling them, this community says, listen, we don't speak great things, but I understand not all of you are educated, right? But all of you can live great things. That was the witness. It was this communal witness showing the world that there was a different way to be human. There was a different way to live instinctively. And I take some time over this church because this is so, this is so critically important. I want to end with a true story from the early third century. It's an amazing story. It kept me up till the early hours of the morning researching this and just being totally blown away by it. Um, it took place in the city of Carthage. That's actually where Cyprian was the leader as well. In what we now know as, know as Tunisia. Tunisia was the Roman capital of the Africa province at the time. And what they had in Carthage was an amazing amphitheater. That's how Rome took their culture to the world, right? Through their sports and through their entertainment. So they had this amazing amphitheater. Arena where um, the gladiator games took place. And in the year of 203 AD, I'm going to read, mostly read this uh, extract of this. This is reliable writings, by the way, very reliable writings. In the year 203 AD, on the birthday of the Roman emperor's son, a special event was organized in the amphitheater in, in Carthage. The Roman amphitheater was a brilliant innovation. It replicated the verticality of Roman society and helped to embed their habitus their instinctive way of life, their culture. Their habitus, to summarize it, the Roman habitus um, showed no weakness or empathy. Um, there was an aspiration to move up the social ladder. You looked after number one, as I said, you boasted about all your achievements. Humility was considered a weakness. It was a harsh, competitive culture. And in a special enclosure at the top of the amphitheater were seated the Roman officials and the city officials in a pecking order, according to their social status and how important they were considered. And in the lower section, right at the bottom, were the victims. The gladiators, the animals, the criminals. Gladiators were expensive, but common criminals were cheap. So there were lots of common criminals. But the gladiators were a bit more expensive, right? And in between, you had the normal citizens of the city, sort of grouped according to 
you know how wealthy they were and who their peers were, etc. So in the amphitheater you have this microcosm, this picture of Roman culture, carefully designed by Rome. On the 7th of May, 203 AD, Carthaginians went to the amphitheater as we might go to movies for their weekly entertainment. This was normal behavior for them. They were acting according to their customs and their culture. They would go as families, take the kids along, right? And as always, the day's events would confirm the vertical values of the society and degrade those who threatened the Roman way of life in any way. Criminals were right at the bottom and they got the worst treatment. Now into this world on this day came something unanticipated. This is a special surprise. Into the amphitheater came a group of six Christians. They were not hardwired as the dominant society was. And what would happen that day in the amphitheater would fundamentally change the city, as you will hear. So these six Christians were arrested. They were brought to the amphitheater to provide a special item in the evening's entertainment. This was, after all, a special day and the people deserved a special treat. All the Christians were catechumens. In other words, they were being trained by somebody. They were studying the Bible, as we would say. Except for a man named Saturus, who was their teacher. He voluntarily joined them in prison to be with them and to continue teaching them. And he voluntarily went to the amphitheater with them to encourage them. How's that for habitus? Just instinctive, these are my people, these are my students, I need to be with them. No second thoughts. Just reflexive, instinctive behavior. So the events that day started as normal. Gladiators came out and they fought to the death. I can picture it was like watching a football game. You know, if you're a Liverpool supporter, you hey man, go Liverpool, score a goal, great. If you're a Manchester United supporter, go, go, go. There was a winner and a loser. And if your favorite gladiator won, awesome, there were great celebrations. If he died, oh, well, let's just look for another one for next time to support. It was very impersonal. It was dehumanizing, totally dehumanizing. And then came the common criminals. The crowd's response to them was unanimous. There was no taking sides here. They ridiculed them. They laughed at them as these poor people cowered in fear. All alone, they didn't have the habitus of the Christians. All alone, begging for mercy. And as the lions tore into them, they laughed. As the blood filled the ground, they laughed. They rose to their feet as one and applauded when the lions would be let out. This was the habitus, the culture in the Roman Empire. But then something different and surprising happened. This group of six Christians entered the arena and it was immediately obvious they were different. They were singing. They looked joyful. And they proclaimed the gospel to the crowds. They said to them, we're going to die. We know we're going to be with our Lord very soon. We're concerned about you if you die now. We're concerned about the torture and the punishment that you're going to have, which is a lot worse than what we're going to experience. They boldly proclaimed the gospel. Didn't cower in fear. They stood together. They hugged each other. And they said, we're ready to die. Different. Then the four men, it might have been five, sorry, with Saturus, the four men were separated from the two women. And this is what they did for the fun and games. The tossing cow was let into the arena. Now the tossing cow was reserved for women in the arena. 
I don't know how they made this crowd so angry, but the cow charged at these women, tossed them high in the air, and they landed with a sickening thud with broken bones and bloodied bodies. The one woman was from a wealthy background in the city. The other woman was a common slave. The wealthy woman dragged herself to her feet first. She called towards the other woman who was lying unconscious, crumpled on the ground. She hugged her on the ground. Through God's power they got to their feet and they continued singing the praises of God. Here you have people from totally different social levels hugging, loving one another, caring for one another. And as the lions charged to them, they died proclaiming the gospel and calling the crowds to repent. How is that for Habitus? Totally, totally different to the reflexive way that the crowds around them, the people around them, behaved. (coughs) And the crowd apparently didn't know how to respond. Some jeered and some laughed and booed, but many of them were silenced. They had never experienced anything like this in their lives. The kids were not brought up to even see people hugging. Can you imagine what different, what, how that must have impacted them? It was like stepping into a different universe, seeing this. So many of them were impacted to the point of making inquiries to find out where the closest group of Christians was. And they went and they made inquiries. And many of them were baptized into the life of Jesus because of that birthday celebration in May 2003. Isn't that amazing? I don't know about you, but this challenges me <laughs> to at the deepest possible level. And this is just an amazing picture of God's church, I think. This is a picture of God's church standing in the middle with the spotlight on them, with, with a critical, skeptical world jeering at us and laughing at us and saying that's a crazy way to behave. You know? But that we're not intimidated and we decide to live differently. We decide to fall forward. We decide to live across socioeconomic levels. We live as a family of all nations. We live a life of love and compassion. And we get to the point through helping one another to instinctively live like that. And the world watches us. And some will jeer and some will boo. And some will laugh. But some will think, wow, this is different. Let me find out what makes them like this. Amen.